Job chapter 27. Last week we actually studied James chapter 1 with the title of a message, Lessons from the Trial, which really coincided, which really gave us a nice picture as to what to learn in the trial. But now as we go back to Job chapter 27, we're titling today's message, The Value of of wisdom. And I want you to write that down. I encourage you to take notes from wherever you're at and be a student of God's word. The title of today's message is The Value of Wisdom. In James chapter 1, we learn that if there are a few things that we should ask for in the trial, it's for endurance, and we talked about endurance, but also for wisdom. For wisdom. And that's why we've titled this message, The Value of Wisdom. Because as we are learning to wait in the trial, as we're learning to wait in the trial, we're asking God to equip us with wisdom. I don't know about you, but if there's, if there's one thing that I know that I need in life, is that God would equip me with wisdom. Wisdom to make the right decisions. Wisdom that would allow me to utilize discernment. Wisdom from God and God's Word. Wisdom to be able to lead now my family, even the ministry, the church, and whatever capacity that God has given you in an area of leadership, you cannot lead now fruitfully without wisdom. It is impossible. I'll also tell you this. It is impossible to go through a trial and learn without wisdom. If you want to be a learner, we must ask God to give us wisdom in the trial. Because we see up until this point that the friends of Job were accusing him and they're, they're really wanting to, in the flesh, bring conviction. Bring conviction that he is guilty. Bring the conviction that he is a sinner and because of his sins now, he is suffering. But we know that that's not correct theology. That God allows even the godly to undergo suffering, to undergo pain, to undergo trial and tribulation now, that we would come out forth as gold, just like Job has already told us. And they're trying to bring that conviction that only the Holy Spirit can bring. And I want to pause there and just, just emphasize on that, that we as believers should never try to, in the flesh, or with our human energy, or according to our own knowledge, try to apply the conviction that the Holy Spirit can only bring. Because the friends of Job were trying to do that. They're trying to convict him. It's your sin, Job. Don't you just realize, just repent. And they're, they're bringing now these harsh accusations so that he would feel the conviction now of the flesh, and now repent, and the Lord would restore him. But I think it's very important that we not to try to minister, that we don't ever try to minister with the energy of the flesh because that never edifies. Never try to minister or bring conviction into someone's situation in the flesh because that doesn't edify. Let the Holy Spirit do it. Because when the Holy Spirit brings a conviction alone, and you pray, Lord, you show them through your Holy Spirit. Lord, through your Spirit, just add the conviction in their hearts. Understand, there's real life change. There's real life change. You don't have to manipulate the situation. But here in, in, in chapter 27 of Job, we start to realize and to see that Job has maintained his integrity thus far. It's, it's impressive. Because that's what real endurance looks like. Endurance doesn't mean 
only, it's not simply that you stick around, but endurance means that you finish well. You notice the difference? It's not about just finishing. It's about finishing well. It's about maintaining your integrity. It's about utilizing your integrity to be able to finish the right way. And that's exactly what here Job is doing. He's maintaining his integrity to finish the right way. In fact, he's using leadership and the leadership quality that he's amplifying here, that he's illustrating here, is integrity. It's been said before, if you have integrity, nothing else matters. But if you don't have integrity, still nothing else matters. <laughs> Do you see how integrity is so needed? If you have integrity, nothing else matters. But if you don't have integrity, still nothing else matters. Because integrity is the definition of your character. Integrity speaks a lot about who you are, and we're going to see here that he doesn't compromise in that area. In fact, he says, as long as I live, I will defend my integrity. And that's how we should live as well. As long as I'm in this trial, as long as I'm in this season, as long as I have to be in this place even of a quarantine, of a stay at home, at whatever it is, of the future trials that you're going to face later on in life, you ought to think in your mind that as long as I'm in a trial, I will maintain my integrity. Now let's, let's read chapter 27, the first few verses to understand how he allows us to see here how he's maintaining his integrity. It says this, Job 27 verse 1. Moreover, Job continued his discourse as he's defending himself before his friends and said, As God lives who has taken away my justice and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, notice this, as long as the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips shall not speak wickedness nor my tongue shall utter deceit. For be it from me that I should say, you are right till I die. Notice that. This is powerful. This is very impactful. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness, I hold fast. I maintain my holiness, my blamelessness. And I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. What do we pray together, church? Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word. And we ask, Lord, even right now as we are entering this chapter in the book of Job, Lord, that you would teach us what it looks like to be men and women, Lord, that hold fast that maintain, that protect, Lord, that defend our integrity, Lord. That we remain blameless, Lord, in any situation and in every season, Lord. That we don't compromise due to frustration and due to emotion in the trial. I pray for anyone that's battling right now, Lord. Battling with the flesh, battling to give in, battling to, Lord, throw in the towel. We ask right now that you would encourage us, Lord, through your spirit and give us your power to maintain our integrity. 
In Jesus' name we pray, and from wherever you are, you say, Amen. Now it says here in verse 1 and 2 that Job is now declaring something. He is now, this is a strong proclamation that he is committed to the truth. He's not going to be swayed by his friends, by his friends' emotions, by his friends' accusations, by his friends' opinions. He is committed to the truth. He's not easily influenced by the opinions of others. You know what's the fastest way to lose your integrity? By being easily influenced by outside secular sources. You want to lose integrity, then, then you, know, you listen to other people, you listen to them and their influence, and, and guess what? Soon enough, you will compromise in the area of integrity. However, Job is an example of how we ought to be committed to the truth. And he tells us this in the very first two verses, as God lives, who has taken away my justice. It is God who has done this. This is a work of God. The Lord has done this. This is His doing. He is looking to the Lord. This is the living God that is over my situation. Notice this. In your trial, think about it that way. This is the Lord over my situation. And he goes on and he says this. And the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, as long as I have breath, as long as I have breath in my nostrils, here it says, and the breath of God is in my nostrils. Notice that. As long as he breathes now breath into me. This is, I love this because he's showing that every breath he's depending upon God. Isn't that amazing there? As long as he breathes breath in me. Notice that. This is what he's saying. The living God. As long as he is sustaining me now fully submitted. He is saying this. As long as I live, I will defend my integrity. My lips will not speak wickedness, my tongue, nor my tongue utter deceit. Now we've noticed this and we've said this before that integrity begins in your mouth. Integrity begins with your lips. It begins with your tongue. It begins with your speech. It begins with the way you say things, how you talk to people. Because we easily compromise and corrupt integrity by in the way that we talk. And that's exactly what he said. I'm not going to blaspheme. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to speak against God in my trial. You see, one of the things that we're so known to do in our trial is to compromise our integrity by complaining. Complaining in the trial. And what he's doing here and what he's saying is that he's refusing to tolerate now wrong. He's refusing now to, to invite now this compromise in his life. And he, notice that he says this, Far be it for me that I should say you are right. There is no way that I'm going to say that you are right, that I have sinned. Therefore, I deserve now this situation. I'm not going to do that. I won't say that you're right. I will not plead your case. I'm not going to give in to the case that you're bringing to me. Till I die... I will not put away my integrity from me until I die. I will hold on to the integrity. I will defend my integrity. I will have uh, no wavering commitment when it comes to this. Do you see how fully committed he is? He is unwavering because what's most precious to him is that. There is nothing more important to him than his integrity. And he goes on and he says, My righteousness or my blamelessness, my holiness... My position before the Lord of me being a righteous man, a godly man, a just man, as we read in Job chapter 1, here it says, I hold fast. I maintain my innocence. Do you maintain your purity? 
Do you maintain your innocence with such a pure conscience? Now, I hold fast to my righteousness. And notice that, that it says here, I will not let it go. You see, in the trial and the tribulation, what we want to do is that we have our righteousness, our holiness, our innocence, our blamelessness before the Lord. And guess what happens? In one instant, we let it go. But here Job is saying, I refuse to let it go as long as I live because nothing is more important to me and I value nothing more than being a just person before the Lord. And he says here, my heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. I know that I'm going to have a pure conscience as long as I live. Now we notice here from verse 7 all the way to, uh, to verse 12 that he's going to talk about now the wicked man. And how that person has no hope. He just told us that he is a man of, of godliness, a man that is ju a just person before the Lord. But now in verse 7, all the way to verse 12, he's going to tell us about the hope of the wickedness. Now it says, May my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. Here it says, For what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he may gain much, if God takes away his life. Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Now he's going to tell him everything that you spoke against me is actually going to come upon you because you don't realize that you're looking at me through a lens of hypocrisy. It's so dangerous when we start to look at people through self-righteousness because that's definitely demonstrating a sense of hypocrisy in our life. And look what he tells him now. He's saying, I, I, I wish upon those that are wicked that they would be punished now or my enemies be punished just like the wicked now. Because they have no hope. What is their hope? Do, you, do, do, do we expect God to listen to them? Do we expect God to, to listen to their cry or to answer their cry when trouble comes upon them? Absolutely not. It says, verse 9, Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? Do, do we expect the wicked man to be now restored from the position of evil and sin and wickedness in his life? No, we don't expect that to happen. Therefore, what is due to the wicked, he hopes that would take place to those that are rising up against him. And he says this in verse 11, that God would judge the wicked. I will teach you about the hand of God. Now he says, let me teach you about how the hand of God really is. Because they didn't know, and he's about to educate them now. And there's something that we ought to know, that we ought to be really learned in, is in the hand of God. The hand of God that's going to provide, protect as well. He is going to provide, but the hand of God that's also ready to judge. And notice that he says this, I will teach you about the hand of God. What is the Almighty? I will not conceal. I will not keep back the hand of God. I will not keep back anything concerning the Almighty. I will tell you everything about God's power. When someone refers to the hand of God, they're speaking about the hand of power, the, the, the power of God's hand now. And look what he tells them here. Surely all of you have seen it. You've seen God's power. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? You see how he's holding them accountable? Why is it that if you heard about the hand of God, that you are behaving with complete nonsense? Why is it that you're handling this situation in such a horrible way? And there are times in our life where sometimes we know about the hand of God, but we handle the situation in a bad way. We don't handle it understanding that we're going to have to give an account to God for what we did and what we said. And He's reminding them 
the power of the hand of God in their lives as well. Because before we're so quick to make assumptions in someone else's life, we have to understand that the power of God applies to us first. Understand this, that the hand of God, the power of God applies over your life before we can try to draw application for someone else's. Now notice in verse 13, it says, uh, verse 12, it says, Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? This is the portion of the wicked man with God and the heritage of the oppressor received from the Almighty. This is the now portion. This is the outcome. This is what those that are wicked will receive from God. This is their inheritance from the Almighty God. He's going to talk about the power of the hand of God upon the wicked. And he says, if his children are multiplied, it is for the sword. If they have a lot of children and a, a big inheritance, it's only that they will die with the sword. And if his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread, those who survive him will be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. And those that are not killed with the sword shall die now because of starvation or hunger now from bread or, or, or lack of bread. And those that survive that now, or those that die from that, their widows will not cry for them. <laughs> They will die through a plague. They will die through starvation. And those that are their family that, that are now left behind will not cry for them. They will be left in misery. Verse 16, Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. That person not only is going to die by the sword of that great family, the wicked, but also as they work hard and they try to make money and they try to build now a house and possessions and clothing. Guess what? They're not going to enjoy any of it because the innocent will divide the silver and they're going to be compensated and the righteous will last. The wicked will not last. He's given a contrast here that the wicked will not last, but the righteous will and no matter how much energy and pursuit and striving the wicked do and the wicked take, it will not last in comparison to the righteous before God. Notice that it says that in verse 17, they will the innocent will divide the spoil and the money. Verse 18, he builds his house, speaking of the wicked, like a moth, like a booth which a watchman makes. Now, how did, what is he giving an illustration of? Of a temporary fickle and fragile home. The wicked builds a house and it's so weak, it's so fragile, it's so fickle, it is destroyed. It's so temporary now, it tells us here, the rich man will lie down but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes and he is no more. The rich man and the wicked man, that one that is pursued after money and riches, he will be now overtaken one day. He will go to sleep riches and one day he'll wake up and he will be poor. His wealth will be gone. It will not be lasting. There's nothing lasting about the wicked. He's saying here, terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night and the east wind carries him away and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. Look at, he is taken away by the wind. He's taken away by the flood. He's blown away by the storms in the night. 
verse 22, it hurls him or it, it throws him from one side to the other now against him and it does not spare. It does struggle, does not spare the power, does not spare over his life, over all the pain and the suffering that they will one day have to give an account to now. And he flees desperately. He's looking for a way out from his power. Men, verse 23, shall clap their hands at him. When others look at the wicked man suffering, guess what they'll do? They'll cheer. And they'll clap, it says here, at justice. And they shall hiss at him out of his place. They'll mock at him. Because that is the end result of the wicked. And he's giving them a clear picture of what the wicked should expect. And it is not now the trial that Job is undergoing. And he's saying, I want you to understand the hand of God because before you speak about the hand of God upon my life and that I need to repent, you ought to have a right view of the hand of God and what the hand of God is over those that are wicked. And he says their end result is judgment. Their end result is not lasting. Their end result is nothing fruitful before the Lord. But now in verse chapter 28 of Job, he is going to explain to them. And I like this portion here. He's going to explain to them that God's wisdom is beyond their comprehension. He just finished giving an explanation of what happens to the wicked. And now he's going to tell them God's wisdom is beyond your comprehension. Now why does he tell them this in, in chapter 28? Because he wants them to realize that, that maybe God's wisdom is beyond their understanding on why God is allowing this in Job's life. And there are times in our life, specifically even the time that we're living in right now, that we have to remember that God's wisdom is beyond our comprehension. It is beyond our understanding. We have to remember that. Because even the situation that we're going through right now, it is beyond our reason, our understanding. We don't know. There's a lot of unanswered questions. But we know that the wisdom of God is final. Not the wisdom of man. Not the plan of man. The wisdom of God is final. And He's giving them a right view of the wisdom of God. To look at this situation through the wisdom of God and don't look at this situation through the wisdom of man. See, we have a big problem of looking at situations in our own wisdom. In a human wisdom. In a fleshly wisdom that seeks for instant, immediate answers. He's saying, look at this trial through the wisdom of God that is beyond your understanding. That you can not understand it, but you can submit to it. Now notice that, and I want you to write that down. You may not be able to understand it, but you can submit to it. That means, Lord, I can't understand it. I cannot comprehend it, but I commit myself to submit under the wisdom of God. Because here in chapter 28, he's going to talk about the value that we need in the wisdom of God. You see, there's a lot of value needed in endurance, as we spoke about previously. Endurance is needed in the trial, but so is wisdom. In the trial, in fact, wisdom is our greatest resource. In the trial, wisdom is our greatest resource. It was Charles Spurgeon that said this, Wisdom is the right to use knowledge. That's so beautifully said. Wisdom is the right to use knowledge. It gives you the right to be able to use knowledge. In fact, here in chapter 28, we're going to see that he is a seeker of wisdom. 
I'm going to ask you, are you a seeker of wisdom? You know who was a seeker of wisdom? It was Solomon. In the Old Testament, he asked the Lord for wisdom. Are you a seeker of wisdom? And once you've found wisdom, I want you to know this, you must refine wisdom through the Word of God. In fact, not only must you refine wisdom in the furnace, you must purify wisdom for practical use every single day. And if you want real treasures, you must dig deep in wisdom. Dig deep in the Word of God because I want wisdom. You cannot get wisdom in five minutes, in two minutes, in three minutes. You need to dig deep if you want wisdom. There is no shortcuts to wisdom. In fact, if you want the treasures of wisdom, you must dig deep in prayer and meditation of the Word of God. It was Warren Worsby that said this, The Word of God is like a deep mine filled with precious treasures. But the believer must put forth effort to discover its riches. It takes careful reading and study and prayer and meditation and obedience to mine the treasures of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God is willing to assist us. Now notice that the Holy Spirit is willing to assist us to dig deep and mine the treasures out of the Word of God so that we can apply wisdom every single day. And this is amazing here because he's teaching them and he's telling them that seeking wisdom through human effort is a waste of time. I want you to remember that today. Seeking wisdom through human effort is a waste of time now. In fact, seeking true wisdom, seeking godly wisdom, requires a few things. It requires, number one, humility. And it requires, number two, spiritual perception. Do you want godly wisdom? It requires, number one in your life, humility. And number two, spiritual perception, that you can perceive and discern spiritual truths from the Word of God. Now, I want to give you a definition of what wisdom is or how we can apply wisdom. Wisdom is this, and it simply said this. It's so practical. Wisdom is life from God's point of view. No, that, isn't that amazing when you just define it that way? Wisdom is life from God's point of view. When we use wisdom, when we use wisdom, you are viewing now life as God sees it. You interpret current events as God would interpret them. Wisdom is using God's interpretation in your life. It's seeing things as God would see them. That's what wisdom is. But then he also talks about understanding in this chapter 28. What is understanding? We know what wisdom is, is looking at things the way God would see them, interpret things as God would interpret them in our lives. But understanding is responding now. Is responding to life's struggles and life's challenges as God would have us respond to them. You want to have understanding? You want to have an understanding person? An understanding person, you know what they do? They know how to respond to struggle and they know how to respond to challenge. The way God wants us to respond to them. You know how God does not want us to respond to struggle and to challenge? Not in panic and not in confusion. You know, the understanding person is not going to panic in the struggle. The understanding person is not going to be confused in the challenge. 
No, they're not. They're not forgetting the things that are valuable to them about wisdom of God's Word and the prayer and the truths and the promises. They're not compromising their integrity. They, they trust now. The understanding person trusts and believes and refuse now to be afraid. I love that. Because the understanding person refuses to be afraid. Why? Because I am now reacting to challenges. I am reacting to struggles as God would want me to react to them with trust and with obedience, with integrity, refusing to be afraid. Now, do you see why this is so important? Because as we go to chapter 28, he's going to talk all about wisdom. That's it. And how and where can you find it? No matter how hard and how now pursuing you are of wisdom, you cannot find it in human effort. You have to find it in the Lord. You have to find it in the Lord. Notice chapter 28, verse 1, the value of wisdom. Do you know how to seek wisdom? Are you a seeker of wisdom? It says this, Surely there is a mine for silver. If you want to go find silver, you go to a mine. In a place where gold is refined, he says, iron takes from the earth and copper is melted from ore. We know how to find copper, silver, and gold. We know how it's refined, in fact. Man puts an end to darkness. Man even can put an end to even the darkest places and searches every recess for one in the darkest and the shadow of death. Man can search even the darkest places and the most primitive locations he can break through. He's saying here in verse 3, He breaks an open shaft away from the people in places forgotten by feet, and they hang far from men. They swing to and fro now. He can repel even to the most dangerous places where there is no light and there's only darkness. You think about how, how man is so capable of doing so much. Man can break through the most primitive and the most dark places in, in this world, in this earth. In fact, it says in verse 5, it says, As for the earth, from it comes bread. On the earth, we, we get bread from the earth, from the top of the earth. We know what it's like to grow food from the earth or from the ground, now it says. But underneath, it's turned up as by fire. But inside the earth, we know its core is fire. Now he's building a case here now in regards to where is it that you can find wisdom though. Its stones are the source of sapphires and it contains gold dust. Now even in the stones, they're so valuable and they contain precious gold. Verse 7 now tells us this. It says, The path no bird knows, nor has the falcon eye seen here, the proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. This is important here. Because he describes now the falcon and the lion. Now the falcon is celebrated or is recognized for its vision. The falcon can see everything miles away. A falcon can see it. And a lion is recognized for its courage. He's so bold. But not even a lion in its boldness or a falcon with its vision can find the wisdom of God. Do you see how he's building this case about how no even wild animal can know these treasures now? 
And it tells us this, he puts his hand on the flint, he overturns the mountains at its roots, he cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes see every precious thing. He dams up the streams from the trickling, what is hidden he brings forth to light. This is everything that man is capable of doing when it comes to treasures, bringing light, even to hidden treasures. But verse 12, this is the core question that he's going to ask. After knowing what man is capable of doing, after describing the vision of the falcon and the boldness of the lion, but where can wisdom be found? Wow, this is amazing. Ask yourself that question today. But where can wisdom be found? And where is a place of understanding, wisdom and understanding? Do you know where to find wisdom and where is their understanding? Where is their discernment? Do you realize the value of it? Where to find it? Do you understand this? And it says, man does not know its value. See, we have to start to value all the right things. There are often times in our life that we value all the wrong things. And we value riches instead of wisdom. We value status instead of understanding. If there is something that, that, that you can be promised, I pray that you ask for wisdom like Solomon did. Because that is the most valuable thing, that is the most precious thing to our life, godly wisdom. And that's why he says, man does not know its value. They despise the value of wisdom. Of how much it means to them, how meaningful it is. Nor is it found in the land of the living. No one can just find it on their own in their human nature now. They need the Lord. The deep, uh, the deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. Notice this, even the deepest ocean and the parts of the ocean know and understand. You can't find it here in the deepest parts of the ocean. And it says it cannot be purchased for gold. You can't even buy it. It's not for sale. Isn't that amazing that he's saying? Even the most precious gold can't give you wisdom. You can't buy it like that. It's not an equal trade. You find the most precious gold and you offer it for wisdom. No, wisdom is much more valuable than that. It says, nor silver can be weighted for its price. You cannot grab silver and weight it on a scale and it will be equal to the price or the value of wisdom because wisdom is still beyond the value of that. Notice, it cannot be valued in the gold or in the offer in precious onyx or sapphire. Even in these precious stones and treasures, you cannot value wisdom there either. And the most valuable thing that you have, you cannot value wisdom there. You cannot appraise wisdom using those things. Oh, this is so amazing. Now he's telling us this here in verse 17. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of finest gold. You can't exchange it for anything. No meditation shall be here, it says. It tells us in verse 18. Of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. Would you underline that in your Bible? The price of wisdom is above rubies rubies next to that right proverbs three fifteen. what does it say she speaking about wisdom is more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her and just think about the most uh, honorable meaningful thing that you think that you can desire it does not compare to wisdom she is far more valuable and precious than rubies it tells us this verse 19 the topaz of Ethiopia, where they find the most precious gold and stones and jewelry in this place, cannot equal wisdom, 
nor can it be valued in pure gold. Verse 19. From where then does wisdom come? Verse 20. If you can't find it in the most primitive places where the most valuable gold is found, where is it that you can find it then? Well, let's keep reading and find out that he's pointing his friends to wisdom. He's pointing them to understanding. This is where we need to be directed to. We need to be redirected to wisdom, redirected to understanding, and have our focus fully dilated on wisdom. Have you noticed when you go out, maybe if you wear glasses and you have to go and get your eyes dilated or your glasses fixed, the prescription and all that, guess what? We have to have our focus fully dilated upon wisdom and understanding. Or we can clearly see it. But where is it that we can see it? Verse 20, it says, where does it come from? And where is the place of understanding? Where does it come from, wisdom? Where's the place of understanding now? Is it, it, it is hidden from the eyes of all the living. They cannot find it. It is concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, look at destruction. And they say when they talk about it, where we have heard a report about it with our ears. And we, we heard a rumor about wisdom with our ears. It says, God understands its way. Well, this is amazing here. This is where you find wisdom. God knows where it can be found. See, there are maybe things that you're searching for and you're, you're struggling to find. And, and the only place where those, those precious, most valuable, wise principles and precepts of God's Word that you can find is in the Lord. Because Christ is your wisdom. Christ is our wisdom. And notice how it says there is, God understands its way and knows its place. He knows where it can be found. For He looks to the ends of the earth. Notice the word looks. And sees under the whole heavens. Speaking about the power and the sovereignty of God. You see how death and destruction have described now that the Lord looks and the Lord sees. I love that now. He looks at the ends of the earth and He sees now under the whole heavens. This is amazing how God is looking over the, the entire heavens and He's able to see to the ends of the earth. Therefore, He knows the way of wisdom. And He knows its place. He knows where it can be found. He is in control of it all. To establish a way for the wind. In fact, He's in control of everything, He says here. And a, 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 a portion, the waters, by measure. He knows how to measure the waters, where they ought to finish and end and begin as well, the oceans. Where He made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt. He commands the rain. He commands the thunder. He is in control. He goes on. Then he saw wisdom. I love this. And declared it. Who saw wisdom and declared it? The Lord saw wisdom and he evaluated it. He evaluated it. You know what evaluate means? Is that he examined it. He prepared it. He examined it thoroughly. Wisdom. And it says this. And he prepared it indeed. And he searched it out. I love this because this wisdom is the wisdom from God. And it says this, verse 28, He's going to tell us the key to unlocking the secret about wisdom. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's something that is so necessary in our lives, and if there is only a certain exclusive way of being able to obtain it, here in verse 28, He's going to give us that. And it says that in verse 28, And to man He said... 
This is what the Lord said to man when he saw wisdom and he evaluated wisdom. Behold. You want to look at wisdom? Look. Behold. We studied behold. It means focus. Listen up. See. Behold. This is how you find wisdom now. The fear of the Lord that is wisdom. <laughs> this is amazing. Isn't this incredible how he, how he builds this entire case and he says, guys, understand this, friends, that the fear of the Lord, he says this to all humanity, behold and focus, that the fear of the Lord, there is true wisdom. You want to find wisdom? It's in fearing God. It's in fearing the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Wisdom and understanding go hand in hand. Because when you have wisdom, you are understanding. You understand how it is that, that God desires for you to respond. You understand how God does not want you to respond because you are applying wisdom and you're seeing things the way God wants you to see them. And it tells us this in verse 28. To a man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord is the, that is wisdom. It's wisdom. But what kind of fear of the Lord he's talking about? He's talking about a loving reverence, a fear of God. It's not a fear that, that paralyzes you, that, that you're scared, but it's a fear that energizes you, that enables you to say that I don't want to do anything to grieve the Holy Spirit. I want to now fear the Lord and walk in obedience to the Lord, in the Lord, and depart from evil. That's what fear means. It's a reverence. It's a respect that I don't want to step away from the presence of God and, and, and go into evil. I, don't, I, I do not want to depart into wickedness. And it says here, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil. In fact, we are to depart from evil, not in, unto evil. Depart from evil, departing from evil, is understanding. You see, this fear is so important because it's the fear of God that conquers all other fears. It's the fear of God that conquers all other fears. Did you listen to that? That means that if I have fear for God, I have fear of God, I have this godly reverence, that I don't have to fear anything else. Because when I fear God, that fear that I have in God, it conquers every other fear that I'm facing. And that's why I have to come to the Lord in fear. In godly fear, I have to come to the Lord in humility. Because when I come to the Lord in humility, in fear, guess what? That is wisdom. Obeying God, submitting to God, cultivating a healthy and holy fear gives us wisdom and understanding. And this is amazing here because fear speaks about submission. It doesn't speak about pride. In fact, pride, personal pride, it's the greatest barrier to spiritual wisdom. There are reasons, that there, there's sometimes reasons and, and moments in our life that, that we cannot attain wisdom and the reason for that is because we have a barrier, a spiritual barrier, and we call that pride. God will not anoint pride with His wisdom. He will not give it to you. In Proverbs 11 verse 2 it says, When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. With the humble is wisdom. That's why he's saying the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, when you flee from evil, when you flee from sin, that there is understanding. So you want to know where to find it? 
Find it in obedience and find it in fear of God. Find it in your fear of God and find it in obedience. And guess what you can do after? You can choose after there to dwell on wisdom and understanding. I can choose to dwell on wisdom and understanding instead of pain and of panic. There are too many of us that right now are dwelling on panic. There are too many of us right now that are dwelling on pain when we can be dwelling on wisdom and understanding. But in order for you to find those precious treasures, you must dig deep into the Word of God and ask the Holy Spirit to assist you. Choose to dwell on wisdom and understanding instead of pain and instead of panic. Now I want, you to t- I want to tell you what Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5 tells us because it speaks about wisdom, right? Proverbs 4, 5. It says, get wisdom and get understanding. <laughs> what does Solomon say? Get wisdom, get understanding. Do you notice how always wisdom and understanding are tied together? What is Solomon teaching us? Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you, it says here. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And and all you're getting, and if you're going to get anything else, get understanding. Exalt her, exalt wisdom, and she will promote you. She will bring you honor, and when you embrace her, she will place on your head an ornament of grace and a crown of glory she will deliver to you. How honorable it is to abide within the the safe ground and the safe place of wisdom and of understanding. That's exactly what he's telling his friends. This is what you're missing. I think one of the greatest things that we're missing is wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding. Wisdom to be able to see it the way God sees it. Understanding to be able to receive it the way God wants me to receive it. To be able to see it the way God wants me to see it. Wisdom. Understanding to be able to receive it the way God wants me to receive it. Now in, ver- in chapter 29, what he does now, Job, he's looking to the past. And he starts to remind himself of the past. And we know that the past is, is a rudder. The past is a rudder. It guides us, just like a little rudder. It should guide us, but it's not an anchor to hold us back. It's a rudder to guide us. It's not an anchor to hold us back. And, and if we try to... I, I love this. This is what, what Charles Swindle said. He said, if we try to duplicate today what we experienced yesterday, we may find ourselves in a rut that robs us of maturity. I'm going to say that again. If we try to duplicate today what we experienced yesterday, we may find ourselves in a rut that robs us of maturity. You see how it's important for us to look forward? Because we're in a godly race. We're in this godly race with Christ going to glory. And you cannot move forward in the race looking backward. This is so important. This is a lesson here. We're going to see that he's looking backward, but we cannot move forward if we're looking backward. Notice this in, in, in now chapter 29, verse 1 of Job, because he's looking back at the goodness of God 
And he's, he's wishing that he was back, and he's especially longing for the days before he lost the sense of God's closeness. He's longing for the days where he sensed and he had the presence of God and it was close to him. He has an awareness of the presence of God in his life. Do you have an awareness of the presence of God in your life? Do you, that you, do you know, man, I used to feel him closer than I feel him now. Or I've never felt him closer than I do today. That's an awareness of God. Do you have an awareness of God? Do you sense the awareness of His presence all over your life right now? Now it says this, Joe furthered and continued his discourse and said, notice what he says, Oh, that I was where I was months past. Have you ever felt like that? I wish I was a few months ago. Maybe right now you're feeling that way. I wish we were back in, in the beginning of January where we, can, we were making our entire schedule and goals for the year and everything was just normal and all right. <laughs> He's looking at the former blessing. Look what he says here. He's, and, and he's looking at the blessed relationship that he had in the Lord. And he misses that blessed relationship that he felt with the Lord. Now, as he's looking back, he was wishing he was back there. Notice this. In the days when God, and I want you to underline this, watched over me. In the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head. Notice this. When his lamp shone upon my head. And when it's light, I walk through the darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime. I wish I was back in my prime with the Lord. <laughs> it says, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me. I love this. Because here he's speaking about just these four concepts that he wishes that he still had in the Lord. He's saying, I wish that, that I was still in those days when God was watching over me. When God was preserving me. He was watching over me. He was preserving me. Verse 3. Notice that. He was preserving me. Verse 3. Not only was he preserving him in, in, in verse 3, the preservation. But notice this. His lamp was over me. It was upon my head. And by his light, I walked through the darkness. When he was guiding me with his light, not only was he preserving me, he was also illuminating my way. He was preserving me, and he was illuminating my way. And notice this, as he continues to, to, to speak about this time, he says, I walked through the darkness just as in those days of my prime, when the friendly counsel, he was my counsel, he was counseling me, he was preserving me, he was illuminating my path, and he was counseling me of, of God. His, uh, of God was over my tent or over my house now. And when the Almighty was yet with me, when his presence was with me, when I had communion with him. You know what he's telling us here in the first now six verses? He's saying, I wish that he was still preserving me. He was still consoling me. He was still illuminating me. And I pray that he was still having communion with me. Have you ever, can you look back at a time when you felt the Lord was so close that He was guiding? And, and look at it, it says, upon me and over me, and His light was there and was so present. This is exactly what He's talking about right here in this very verse, these very six verses. And now He goes on from verse 7, He says this, as He's talking about His relationships with people. Look how honored He was, how honorable He was. It tells us this, when my steps were bathed with cream and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me, there was blessing all around for me in every way. Everywhere that I turned, there was a blessing and abundance for my life. From the riches of milks to the best of oils, it was an abundant and it flowed in every area, every area of my life. When I went out of the gate by the city and I took my seat in the open square, I was honored. I sat in the most honorable places now. 
The young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was now hushed, and their tongues stuck to the root or the roof of their mouths. When the ear heard, then it blessed me, and when the eye saw, then it approved of me. Notice this, he's saying, you know, when people and the most honorable and the most wise saw me, they listened, they hushed, they, they, they were satisfied in the wisdom that I had to say. All praised me here, verse 11, when they saw me, they approved of me from the princes all the way to the high officials. I was respected now. Not only did I feel close with the Lord, I also felt honored among men. From young to old, there was no one that lacked respect when it came to me. Now listen, listen from verse 12 to verse 17, what kind of ministry and joy and compassion he had. Because I delivered the poor from the, who cried out. Look, I delivered the poor who cried out. The fatherless of the ones who had no helper. And the blessing of the perishing man that came upon him. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. When it came to the fatherless, the orphan, the widow now. When it came to those that were poor, I was there for the fatherless for the perishing, and for the widow. I was there for them, and they sang songs of joy for me because I was a helper to them. It tells us this, I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I, I, I wore righteousness. I wore godliness from head to toe like a turban on my head all the way down to the gown. I wore, I was clothed all around in it. I was an eye to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. I defended the poor and the weak and the widow. In fact, I took them out of the mouth of the wicked. He's saying he was a man of godly character. He was a man of integrity. And notice that he plucked them out of the mouth of the wicked. He was a man of action. A man of action. He did not tolerate injustice. Job. He's reflecting now. And I said, I shall die in my nest. He's saying, this is what I expected, that I will die in my house with a full family. He's saying, and multiply my days as the sound. My root is spread out to the waters, and the dew lies all night on my branches. My glory is fresh within me. This is how I thought I was going to die, with glory and freshness, with, with the Lord's blessing upon my life. And, and my bow is renewed in my, my bow is renewed in my hand. Men listened to me and waited. And kept silence for my counsel. People always wanted to hear what I had to say. Job is saying in verse 21. In the glory days. When I thought I was going to be healthy and refreshed. With a long life and a big family. After my words they did not speak again. They were satisfied that nobody had to add any commentary. They were satisfied with the wisdom that came from my mouth. And my speech settled on them like as do. They waited for me as for the rain. And they opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. They, they were looking now for, to be satisfied as being refreshed with rain in their lips. If I, and if I mocked at them, they did not believe it. And the light of my countenance, they did not cast down. They did not believe it. When I looked at them, when I smiled, they were cheered up. Those that were discouraged, I chose the way for them. Or I was as a commander or as the leader of authority in the community. I told them what to do, the way that they should go. And sat as a chief now. So I dwelt as a king in the army, as one who comforts mourners. You see how he's looking back at the life that he lived. He says, look, this is the way that I, I lived. I gave people fresh comfort. And they gave people fresh hope. 
But you know what the, he also tells us here now? That we have to be careful of not looking back too much at the past. Because if we focus so much on the glories of the past, if we focus so much on the glories of the past, that we ignore the opportunities of the present, we might be unprepared to meet the future. And I want to ask you today, how are you prepared to meet the future right now? How are you prepared to understand that this season will come to an end and you have to be ready for what God has for us and before us? Because the trial is not a, it's not a permanent place. It's a temporary place of growth. And I want to encourage you as we end, we cannot focus so much on the glories of the past that we pass and ignore the opportunities of the present. Because if we ignore the opportunities of the present, we will not be ready to meet the future. And that's why we have to ask the Lord, Lord, prepare me to meet what you have in store in the future for us. Can we pray that God would give us the wisdom and understanding to handle this season? But the wisdom and understanding as well. To be able to be prepared to face the future, whatever that looks like in the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And we ask, Lord, that we would be learning from Job, Lord, what it looks like to focus on wisdom and understanding. I pray that we would not forfeit opportunities in the present because we're looking at the past, but that we would be prepared to meet the future with wisdom and with understanding, Lord. Teach us to be able to see things the way you want us to see them and receive things the way you would like for us to receive them. Convict us, Lord, by your Spirit, not by human energy or effort of man, but convict us by your Spirit. It is in Jesus' name we pray, and together we said, Amen. Well, church, we are so grateful to be able to meet with you and in this platform online again, we'll say it. Uh, we want to encourage you to be a part of that prayer meeting tomorrow. We're going to be praying that God would give us wisdom and understanding to be able to face whatever that future holds, but it is in God's will and God's hand. God bless you. We're praying for you. We love you, and we'll stay connected for tomorrow night.